All right, there we are. I'm Pastor Gillespie from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church and Schools, Sherman Center, Random Lake, Wisconsin. Good to have you with us here this evening for our congregation at prayer. No, <laughs> our Bible study on the book of Hebrews. We're in Hebrews chapter 10 this evening, uh, which we'll look at here in a moment. Uh, let's see, we got started a few minutes late. Uh, just confirmation went a little bit long. Confirmation, confirmation instructions. So uh, that's how it goes. All right. Let's get the class up on the screen here. Uh, nope, not that one. How about that? Getting closer. Uh, hey, look, there we are. All right, very good. So this is uh, Hebrews chapter 10, if you're going to follow along at home. All right, let's start with prayer. Heavenly Father, you have sent your son Jesus into the flesh to be our great high priest, uh, to come and sprinkle our, uh, to sprinkle us internally with his blood to give us a clean conscience and to wash us with pure water in the waters of baptism. We ask that you would guide us into your church and keep us in your church all our days, um, that we would constantly be with Jesus and redeemed by him. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, very good. So uh, hopefully a few more will jump on here in a few minutes. But like I said, I like to start a few minutes early, start a few minutes late tonight, but so it is. I can't avoid everything. Um, let's do a little bit of a refresher, and then we'll dig into the text for tonight, which begins in verse 19 of chapter 10. All right, so we'll, we'll do a little recap, and then, uh, then we can jump into our text for this evening. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect or complete. For then... Uh, would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. All right, so last time we talked about them being a type or a shadow of the forgiveness of sins that we have in Jesus Christ, right? So they, uh, if you like, they were a divine object lesson given by God to teach the need for the sacrifice of Christ um, to forgive, all right? Um, so they did forgive, but by faith, right? Pointing forward to the faith in the Messiah who would come and forgive sins once and for all. Therefore, when he came into the world, speaking of the Messiah, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. All right, so we have the uh, quotation here from uh, from the Psalm, Psalm forty six through eight. All right, and that being a Psalm of Christ. Yeah, good to have you checking in there, Tim and Don. Good to have you. All right, all right, and then there's going to be a little uh, what we call exegesis, so an interpretation of that Psalm, which we talked about last week. Previously, saying sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, of course, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. All right, and then here's the key. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. Right. So this is the language of covenant or testament. The old covenant um, is fulfilled by the new covenant. The new covenant, that is the covenant of his blood, fulfills the old covenant. Right. So this comes up often. Um, say in the book of Galatians in particular, but also you see this play out in the Jerusalem Council in the book of Acts, that do we need to subject ourselves again um, to the law, that is the old covenant, to circumcision, to the sacrifices, to the temple, all those sorts of things? Um, and absolutely not, right? Why? Because Christ's blood atones for our sins, not the blood of those sacrifices, right? We are marked with the circumcision uh, of the heart, which um, Paul calls but it's one of the things he calls baptism, right? So we don't need the circumcision of the flesh because we're marked by our baptism, not by uh, fleshy circumcision, etc. All right? So he takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will, that is the will of God uh, in Christ Jesus, we have been sanctified, that is made holy, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, right? So for all meaning uh, for you and for me, but also once and for all, as in um, it's completed forever, 
right? It's completed. It's uh, finished. It's perfected. Speaking of, all right, we covered this last week, and every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Boy, that sounds like futility, doesn't it? Over and over doing the same thing with no, not, but not actually receiving the thing that they point towards. Uh, that's the definition of uh, um, idiocy, right? Or stupidity? Uh, is doing the same thing. Oh no, it's insanity. That's it. Doing the same thing over and over, expecting a different result. All right. Of course, welcome to our life. Um, verse 12, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, that's the cross, of course, sat down at the right hand of God, and from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. And I think we talked about this last week, this enemies, enemies being made a footstool. Um, did I mention that it, that it was a reference um, actually to a to their exile in Egypt? I don't remember if I actually told you this or if I found this later. Um, so, um, it's sometimes called the Nine Bows. All right, so Nine Bows. Let's see if I can get this up on the screen for you. Safari, Nine Bows. There we go. All right, Nine Bows. I don't really like where that's sitting on the screen, though. Can we put that somewhere else? Oh, I just need to change the size of the window. Yeah, there we go. All right, so nine bows. Um, you'll see this. Oh, here's an example. Um, so you can see here's the Pharaoh with his feet, right? Um, and then what's under him are these nine weapons and these nine men. All right, and these are the these are the nations of the world. We talk about the world from the scriptures perspective as being uh, the four corners of the earth, right? Um, but in in uh, in ancient Egypt, it's pictured as here it is. You see how they're all on their knees, right? So this was the footstool of uh, Pharaoh, actually, was this big block um, that had all the enemies underneath it. Isn't that incredible? Yeah, there's another example. The Bible for zombies. I don't know what that's all about, but there you go. Oh, you can tell they've been subjected because they're all tied up. You see that? And then there's icons to indicate the nine enemies, the nine nations that are subjected. Here's another Here's another one. This is all over the place. There's all sorts of, and it actually literally is a footstool there. You can see it's kind of, um, it's got an indentation for the foot and then the enemies are underneath. Oh, here's another one, right? With the, um, uh, it's not the Sphinx. What is this? The, not the leopard. Mm, I can't remember uh, what, what critter that is. Do you remember? I don't see anybody saying in the chat. Let's see. Uh, oh, that is the Sphinx. Look at that of, of Tutmos the Third, showing Pharaoh reclining as as a Sphinx um, on the nine bows. All right, so there you go. So it's got the oh, there's the nine bows underneath him. All right, all right, and those are again uh, a sign of the nations. So all nations are brought into subjection to his feet. Uh, why is this so cool? Um, all of this language. Oh, here's another neat one too. I mean, these, this, this language is all over the place. I don't know why it's crooked on the screen, right? But we have the nations there. Um, because what does what is, what is the scriptures do? Oh, here's the pedestal. Actually, it even has feet on it. Look at that, with the nine bows underneath his feet. Um, because what God does in the scriptures, what Moses does, and, and then it's co-opted by the psalmist, is he claims, or, re, or what do you want to say, baptizes, I guess is a good word? Baptizes this image from ancient Egypt and uses it for his good use. Now, this is actually a pretty good, um, what do you want to say, apologetic that you might take advantage of as a Christian. Sometimes you'll see um, people say, well, you know, Easter is really this feast to Ustra, who's this Roman god, and, you know, the, the Easter eggs are, are a sign of fertility, and that's coming from this fertility cult, and, um, Oh, I don't know what else. The butterflies and the lilies are all signs of X, Y, and Z thing. And it's really just a Roman festival that the Christians uh, added some Jesus to and, made, and turned it into a Christian festival. Or they'll do the same thing with Christmas, being the birth of, oh, I don't know, some god or some, some Roman god or something like that. All right, being, because it's near the um, winter equinox. Um, well, okay, fair enough. <laughs> Christians have taken um, imagery from their surrounding cultures and then said, well, you were, you thought that all of that was, um, you know, only about these Roman gods of your making, but here, Jesus actually, all, all creation 
is given to testify of him. And so we're going to take that thing and we're going to co-opt it. You know, think about how like uh, the Germans worshipped uh, Thor's tree, right? Uh, and then uh, famously, who is it? Not Bonaventure, not Francis. Um, Benedict? Yeah, I think it was St. Benedict came and cut down Thor's tree and then made it, used it to make a church or make an altar out of the wood, right? Uh, so this is what we do. We take it and, uh, and we use it for our good use. So uh, the psalmist actually does this in Psalm 110. Uh, get that back up on the screen. Yeah, there you go. Until, until his enemies are made his footstool, right? So what Pharaoh claimed for himself, God actually reclaims and says, properly speaking, that's actually about me. I'm the one and all earthly enemies will be under my feet. Isn't that fun? All right. I don't know if we talked about that last week, but I did a little bit more research on it and uh, just like, what's this language of a footstool? So you had the sphinx and the nine bows. All right. Verse 14, for by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified once and for all, one and done. Think of uh, Jesus' own word at the cross, which I, we were just doing catechesis um, with the young ladies that are in their uh, second or third year, depending. Right? We talked about that phrase uh, from the cross, from John 19. It is finished. And I ask him, what is finished? Well, this is what's finished, the atonement for sin, once and for all. Right? Verse 15, but the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, this is my... Is, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. This is all from Jeremiah 31, by the way. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds. I will write them. Then he adds, also Jeremiah 31, verse 34, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is remission or forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Right? There was an offering for sin, that's Christ on the cross, right? Once and done, right? And now there's no longer a need to offering, make offering for sin. Uh, so that's what I talked about with the, with the ladies and saying, well, look, if it's finished, then what's left to be done? And we're like, wow, you still have to go to church. Um, okay, but does that save you? Well, no, Jesus died for me to save me. Okay, so that's finished. Uh, go to church, why? Because that's where you hear what Jesus has done for you, right? Uh, well, but faith, oh, we have to have faith. I'm like, well, where does faith come from? Well, by the Holy Spirit. Can you believe? No, actually, I can't believe. Third article of the creed. Well, then, faith is a gift and it's given to you by his word at church, right? Do you have to do it? No, you just, you get to receive it, right? Again. Uh, so what's left to be done? When it, in regards to salvation or an offering for sin, nothing, right? It's finished. It's complete, right? And that is, other. if it's not complete, then it's not good news anymore. Um, if something's left to be done by you, then uh, now it's, we're just back to the law, right? Uh, which is misleading, of course. All right. So that's, that's what we did last week. Uh, and now we can uh, jump in to what we can do for today. All right. So, oh, I love these therefores. Therefore, moon. All right. So I'm going to read from Dr. Kleinig's uh, translation and then. Uh, um, I'll try to keep, I'll just keep calling out verse numbers so you can follow along. All right, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, having freedom of speech for entrance into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, verse 20, which he inaugurated for us as a new and living way through the curtain, that is, the way of his flesh, verse 21, and having a great high priest over the house of God, right? Verse 22, let us come near with a true heart in the fullness of faith, having had our hearts sprinkled from a bad conscience, like evil conscience too, that's good, and having had our body washed with pure water. All right, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Verse 24, and let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works. 25. Not forsaking the communal assembly, as is the habit of some, but giving encouragement, and all the more so as you see the day approaching. All right. So we have the day and we have the way. Uh, these are important uh, expressions uh, from Jesus that we'll talk about tonight. All right. So therefore, brethren... Uh, we've talked about this word brothers 
Um, he's using he uses this frequently, and it's not by way of like kind of buttering them up or kind of you know uh, setting them up for you know coming upside and whacking them upside the head or something, right? No, he actually means this. This is again, this is a, a preacher teacher in the context of a Christian assembly, in the context of the divine service and the administration of the Lord's Supper, um, teaching them. And so he calls them brothers, right? And we're all brothers in Christ, regardless of our, um, our biological sex. Uh, that's not being transgender. It's just recognizing that we actually all want to be sons because the sons are the inheritors of the kingdom, right? So just use the scriptural language. Therefore, brothers, having freedom of speech, or as it's translated here, boldness, boldness. Now, we had the same word come up back in uh, Hebrews 4, I believe, verse 16. Yeah. Therefore, or let us therefore come again with freedom of speech to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So that was back in 4. All right. So what is this freedom of speech? All right. So this is not, of course, the secular sense. Uh, that we have in the First Amendment, although uh, apparently we don't actually have that, um, especially if you're in political office and uh, you want to use social media platforms. But um, we're talking about uh, appearing before not only a king in this case, but also you know the king of the universe, um, and having the ability to speak. Uh, now you would note if you were to appear before a king, you wouldn't just get to start talking. You would have to be wait until you received permission to speak. Right? This is still true if you're in the, say, the court of the Queen of England, right? You don't just walk in and start talking to her like she's your best bud. You wait, you wait until you're being given permission, and then you speak. This is, this is still true with royalty. Um, or when you're in the place, I think it's really probably true if you're, um, what do you want to say, in a, in a position where, um, where you're subject to someone else, right? Um, maybe, uh, like if you're called um, to witness in a court, Right, you don't speak until the until the judge gives you, you're put under oath, and he says, you know, now answer the questions. Right, all right. So it's the same idea here. It's a little bit of a courtroom kind of scene. Um, but look, look what uh, the the preacher teacher is saying. We have freedom of speech. Right, we have full access to speak um, to the divine Creator of the heavens and the earth, the Father. How? Through the holiest. Uh, to the, enter into the holiest, that's the heavens, right? The most holy place, or the holiest of holy places, right? Which is now, um, you know, wherever God dwells, right? It doesn't mean necessarily the holy of holies back in Jerusalem, right? It means uh, where God dwells today at the right hand of the Father. Um, by the blood of Jesus, right? Now, this is the key, right? That, that the blood of Jesus um, is our royal uh, garment, right? It's, we're actually clothed in that blood. This is why all that Old Testament sacrificial stuff where the blood's being sprinkled on the people all the time is so important. You think, well, man, that's got to be a mess, especially the priest himself. He's got these beautiful garments with stones and, and, and gold, um, gold thread woven within it. And, and then there's putting blood on it all the time, right? But it's this, it's, again, it was given as a type or a shadow of what is to come. And that we, we are robed in Christ's um, righteousness, that is, his blood-bought righteousness, his forgiveness. So um, we can enter into the holy place because we're wearing the right clothes. We're covered in the right blood, right? We've been atoned for, we've been forgiven, right? And that gives us boldness of speech, which is really key here, that we get to speak, um, confess, to ask, to pray. We'll talk about that on Sunday, you know, um, the, uh, the, not only the, the privilege, but the authority that God gives to us to pray and to intercede and to make thanksgiving for everyone, including uh, kings and those in authority. Um, by, by what? He inaugurated this for us by, or it says consecrated here in New King James, inaugurated by a new and living way through the curtain. All right, now way, uh, this is the hodos um, in Greek. Think of what Jesus said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, right? I am the way. So what's the, what's the way to the Father? It's through the blood of Jesus, right? Through Jesus. And it's the new and living way. Was there another way to get to the Father? Under the old covenant? Yeah, once a year through the blood of the Passover lamb, right? But now we have unmitigated, um, 
uh, unlimited, we would say, access more than once a year. Now we have full and complete access. We can pray uh, without ceasing day and night to our Heavenly Father. This is a new thing. This is a change. And it's a living way, right? It's not through a death, but now it's through, well, it is through a death. It's through Christ's death, um, but a death that gives us life. Um, Through the veil, and of course, um, what is that veil? Hmm. That is his flesh, right? So now we have the the temple curtain veil. Um, we were, you know, we already have this in the New Testament, where the the temple itself is um, a picture of Christ and His flesh. Right? He says, "Destroy this temple, in three days I will raise it up." Here, the writer to the uh, preacher teacher to the Hebrews is is actually likening that veil that separated the mercy seat, where God meted out His mercy upon the upon the people once a year. Um, now. That veil, of course, was torn in two when Jesus died, and that veil is his flesh. We have access to the Father through the body and blood of Jesus. Um, we'll probably talk more about that later. But body and blood, you know, there's not a lot of explicit mention. I, no, there isn't any of the sacraments, um, but they're, they're, I think they, they fully saturate uh, what the preacher teacher is doing here. And that makes sense, because again, if we're in the context of a divine service, and they're going to be receiving the sacrament after the preaching of the word, it makes sense that you would hear all these, oh yeah, there it is, the body and blood, through his flesh, the blood, by his blood, given in the chalice. Got it. All right. Mm-hmm. And, that, and it's actually his body and blood given to us in the forgiveness of sins, um, in the sacrament of the altar, that gives us full access to God. Which again, we talked about this, maybe not last week, but a couple weeks ago, that we have the actual physical manifestation of this in the way that, that we assemble in corporate worship, right? We gather in uh, in what we call the nave, right, which is the naval part. That's the ship, of the the hull of the ship, right. But we're brought up to the holy place through baptism. That we have to pass through the font to get to the most holy place, if you like. That is the altar where Christ's body and blood is is given out to us, right. But we have full access to that, and it's available to us um, as often as we'd like, as often as we need. Do this. In remembrance of me, Jesus says. All right, verse 21, and having um, a great high priest over the house of God, who is that great high priest over the house of God? The flesh that we come to, uh, the, high, the, the house of God through, right? Having been washed in the blood of Jesus, that would be Jesus himself, then here's the cool. This is called a hortatory um, uh, or an exhortation or an, a hort. It's a hortatory voice is what we call it. Hortatory conjunction. Let us draw near um, or come near with a true heart in the fullness of faith. All right, so let us. Um, trying to think of a good way to talk about hortatory conjunctions here. It sounds kind of like, um, well, it's, 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 an, it's a command. <laughs> it comes off sounding kind of like a command, but it's more than a command. It's actually a com- it's it's the gift. It's a command that's a gift. If that makes any sense, right? Um, that it's a privilege. It's a right. It's a gift. Um, but it's also not an optional thing, right? So because Jesus has done all for this, all this for us, then let us go um, to the altar of God, to the house of God, to the holiest by His blood through His flesh, with a true heart. Right, clean created me a clean heart of God in full assurance of faith. Full meaning, um, yeah, it's pleurophoria, um, right? In a, in the fullness of faith. So we we have full access. There's no reason why we wouldn't come. Um, so I mean, I think you also have then here in mind the uh, preacher teacher um, is is really encouraging those who perhaps feel. Um, because of their sins, unprepared or unworthy to come to the supper, to encourage them. Yes, the supper is for you. Come. Jesus died for you. Yes, Jesus died for me. Then come. Receive, right? This, this is my body. You agree? Yes, that's, that is Christ's body. This is my blood. Yes, I agree. Then what's keeping you from the altar? Well, and then there's excuses. <laughs> well, what does, what does the preacher teacher have to say about the excuses that we make? That might prevent us from receiving um, the Christ 
Christ Jesus in full faith with a, with a true heart? Well, it's our conscience. But what kind of conscience? A good conscience? No. An evil conscience, right? So that's, that's the very next expression. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, that is cleansed, and here sprinkling, think about all the ways that the blood was sprinkled or the water with the, um, was sprinkled on people in the Old Testament purification rites. All right? So anytime there was the death of an animal and the blood was sprinkled on the people. His blood be on us and on our children, said the, uh, said the, uh, the Pharisees, or excuse me, the Jews at uh, Jesus' crucifixion. Well, that's exactly it, actually. <laughs> His blood is sprinkled on our, and it cleanses our conscience and gives us a good conscience. Right? That is a conscience that conforms um, to what God has said about us, about sin, but also about the forgiveness that he gives in Christ. All right? So this, this changes our decision-making process. Remember, that's what the conscience does. Um, I guess you might say it's the, uh, the right or wrong muscle. The, the sin is how we say that in Greek. Let's see if uh, conscience, what's, an, what's the fuller definition of this? Sinaitis comes. I'm looking here. Um, in secular Greek, what does this mean? It's a reflexive expression. It's a verb used in philosophy. Where is it a noun? What does it mean as a noun? No, oh, they have no consistent meaning through the fifth to third centuries BC. All right, so. This would be something to be fun to do a lot of research on. Actually, I think um, uh, Pastor Brian Wolfmiller has done a lot of work on the conscience, namely in the Lutheran confessions. But it'd be interesting to see how that word for conscience is used, the synodicus is used uh, in the scripture. Right, but we know how it's used in the New Testament in particular. Right, again, this is, this is that an inherent sense that we have um, between, you know, to, to guide our actions, to decide what is right and wrong, right? And an evil conscience chooses to go against God's will and against our own nature, which God has, which is the image of God that's written upon our hearts. Right? That would be an evil conscience. A good conscience um, lives in the forgiveness of sins, right? So that we can um, serve serve God in faith and love our neighbor um, according to that that faith. But it's not just our hearts being sprinkled. Notice. Also, our bodies are washed with pure water. Now, if that's not a baptismal reference, I don't know what is. Right? Um, but this is also important. Um, we don't talk about this much with sin. We, we usually think of sin as being this internal disposition, right? That we're, we've offended God with our, with our hearts or with our minds, right? Or even maybe through our actions. But here's the thing about actions, right? Whether we sin against our neighbor or sin against God with our bodies, um, that makes us unclean. Or if someone sins against us in the body um, and brings shame upon us because of what was done to our bodies, that also needs forgiveness. Um, so this is the, especially the case, I learned this actually from Dr. Kleinig, um, and I think it, for him it comes out of his study of the book of Leviticus and the book of Hebrews um, in particular, in that um, that sin manifests itself that in, in guilt and shame, right? And now we have a guilt and shame culture. We're moving more to, to a shame-based culture, right? We should be ashamed of what we wrote on Twitter 10 years ago or something, right? And be canceled for it and pay, make amends. And maybe, or, or the president, there you go. We'll get back to free speech, right? The president, he has to show sufficient remorse for all of the bad tweeting he did before we're going to let him back on the platform to speak again. Right now, that's just shame-based culture. It's really more of an Eastern-style culture. It's, um, it's the kind of um, culture uh, that guides the, say, the Chinese Communist Party in particular. The Chinese, uh, modern-day China, that's how that's how they behave too. They have things called social credit score, which is based on shame. Doing the right things makes you less, you know, uh, makes you more pure. If you do the wrong things, it makes you it it brings corruption or shame upon your house. Right. I think of uh, Eastern cultures. Um you know, like kamikaze pilots or falling on one's sword, right? That, that that tradition had to do with shame, not so much with guilt. I did nothing wrong, but rather than bring shame on my house by dying at the hands of the enemy, I'm going to take my own life. That's part of their culture, right? Which is very different than ours. Um, but we got, we need to be aware of this because we're, we're moving into that um, Eastern style culture away from the Western culture, which really has to do with right and wrong and guilt, right? Attached to right and wrong, 
um, guilt and innocence. But regardless of whether we're talking about guilt and innocence or we're talking about you know, shame, uh, desecration um, that's brought upon our bodies, and that especially happens when someone sins against us. So think of you know, cases of, like, say, rape and incest and um, uh, physical abuse, um, mar- abuse within marriage, especially uh, physical there. Um, that actually brings great shame upon someone. And it, it, because it's done in the body, it kind of sticks to us, you know, like tar and feather. You know, it, it, um, we bear it in our bodies. We talked about this when we studied the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, which we did before we were look, started Hebrews, um, in the way that the sexual sin that was, uh, was occurring within the church of Corinth, um, that was one of the occasions for Paul's letter to them, that first letter, um, was bringing actually great shame. Um, upon the whole congregation it was destroying the congregation because it was leading i would say to apply what we're reading here uh it was leading many people to live with an evil conscience right because they had they were looking the other way towards what was clearly a sin i think it was um a man was sleeping with his um mother-in-law is that right i think so yeah all right so we we need to recognize that there's different kinds of cleansing that the lord gives through his word through the gospel one is, of course, to our hearts, creating me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me, Psalm 51, right? And here, it's our hearts are sprinkled from an evil conscience, right? So that our hearts are cleansed so that um, our decisions are done in the forgiveness of sins that we have in Christ Jesus. But also, it ha- it apply- it's applied to our bodies. So he, he does cleanse us of the shame of our bodies. Um, I think we actually have maintained some of this in our culture. A good place that you might see this is in uh, the context of actually weddings. Hmm. So what's, what's the traditional garment for the bride in a wedding? Yeah, I've used this in sermons before. White, right? Yeah, the bride always wears white. Why does the bride always wear white? Well, regardless of um, their conduct before the wedding, um, God willing, what hopefully happens is that they confess if they've uh, um, lived outside um, you know, marital fidelity or chastity before marriage, that they confess, they've been forgiven, and they come to then their wedding made clean in the blood of Jesus, right? And that's what the white of marriage is meant to show. It's it's actually kind of a picture of baptism as well then, all right? So that's all right there in verse 22. Um, but let, notice, it's let us draw near. What a lovely exhortation to the congregation, right? Don't be afraid. Come near, having your hearts sprinkled with his blood and having your bodies been washed with pure water, having been baptized and having uh, the, the word of absolution applied to your heart. Come near and receive uh, from Jesus, I would say, his body and blood. That's the, that's the context of what's going on here. Then verse 23, um, let us, again, notice it's the same, ex- same expression here. It's a hortatory conjunction, which is made by, how do you make a hortatory? conjunction that would be where you have something followed by that i'm trying to remember the grammatical how you create these expressions in greek grammar ah, my mind my memory's not reminding me how you what the forms are that come that give you this but anyway because let us is implied actually we have that we have another one here let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful right um, so holding fast um, to a confession without wavering. Um, this is going to come up uh, in the next section. He's going to transition away from what we've been really doing all the way from chapter 5 now into chapter 10, which is speaking of what Christ has done for us, right? And then beginning in, at the end of the, well, in a few verses here, he's going to transition to, to what's the effect upon the Christian congregation, right? What's the effect upon you? How does this affect your life as a Christian uh, within the fellowship of the church? Right. right now, he's still he's at the very end of his encouragement um, that we remain with Christ, that we live in him, that we uh, have our consciences cleansed, that we remember that we have been washed clean in his blood. And here, because of that, that we hold fast to Jesus, right? Um, I've talked about this before, um, but in our stained glass windows at uh, Sherman Center, if you look, as you're facing the altar, uh, up and to the left, I think up, it's actually in the balcony, the top icon, um, you'll actually have an anchor, right? And the anchor with a, with a rope, right? And that we've been anchored to Christ, 
Right? That's that. That's what this language is: holding fast, being bound to Him. That is the confession. Uh, remember, confession is a good word. Homologia, which means that we the same speaking. Hmm, we speak what God has given to us, spoken to us of our hope. Right, our hope is in Jesus without wavering. And how can we hold fast? Because He who promised is faithful. He keeps His promises. Now, are you going to hold fast to a confession if you don't know if God actually keeps that promise? Why would you, right? That's like, what do we call that? Having a hope and a prayer. Well, this, actually, Christian hope isn't, isn't really this, like, uh, Hail Mary kind of pass, right? Or, I don't know, hope and a prayer. It's like, well, maybe, maybe everything will go okay. That's not Christian hope. Christian hope is confidence, right? Without wavering. It's, um, because because Jesus has died for sins, then you know you are forgiven, you know that you are his, and you know that you will have the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting on the last day. Right? There's no, there's no um, uh, doubt about it. It's true. Of course, you may have doubts. Um, that's your flesh. right? The doubts come from your flesh. But according to the work of the Spirit, according to his word, uh, and then according to the faith that he gives by the Spirit and the word, there is no doubt. Right? Um, I love the hymn. What's the hymn that we sing about this? Jesus is my confidence, right, is the last line. Uh, You know, make all fear and something hence. Jesus is my confidence. Mm -hmm. I just can't remember the first line. I really remember the last line. Jesus, oh, my computer's running slow, is my confidence. Let's see where that comes from. Come on, computer. You can do it. You can do it. Dun, 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 dun. I mean, it's quoting Second Corinthians three. Oh, I should have looked it up on uh, on hymnody, hymnary. I should say hymnary.org. You know hymnary.org? It's actually a hymnal reference. Uh oh, Jesus Christ. Jesus lives. The victory's won. This shall be my confidence. There we go. Yeah, so it goes, um, uh, Jesus lives, the victory's won, death no longer can appall me. Jesus lives, death's reign is done, from the grave Christ will recall me. Brighter scenes will then commence, this shall be my confidence. Yeah, now you know it. All right, so every stanza ends that way. Jesus lives, and now is death, but the gate of life immortal. This shall calm my trembling breath when I pass its gloomy portal. Faith shall cry, as fails each sense. Jesus is my confidence. All right, that's from, uh, the text is from, who wrote the original? Oh, Christian Gellert, 1757, about, translated by Francis E. Cox, and then the tune is from Johann Kruger, 1656. Beautiful. Oh yeah, that'd be a great hymn to sing at a funeral. I agree, Tim. Um, it, it reminds me a lot of like God's Own Child, which is a baptism hymn. Right, but just say, yeah, you know, I am baptized into Christ. Just those words, and then to repeat the word over and over and over, you know, in the face of sin, death, and devil, in the face of doubt, sin, despair, in the face of what the um, yeah, doubts. What else does it mention here? Um, yeah, death, the powers of hell. Right, say nope. Jesus is my sure defense. This shall be my confidence. All right, good. So that's what's going on here too. He's promised it, um, and that this is also this is actually it's a pretty good, uh, pretty good thing to to mention, or it's something I think actually important to mention. Uh, when you have doubts, how do you respond to doubts? By like ginning up some some more faith in you? Nope. You go back to God's word. You go back to the promises. You go back to what was said about you in your baptism, right? What was what what was what you heard from the pastor on Sunday? Now, the words that Christ spoke in the institution of his supper, right? That's where you go. Those are the words that give you faith, that, that restore your confidence. Right? This is why we do the same thing over and over, by the way, each week. Uh, because we're, we're pretty good at doubting. We're not so great at believing. Uh, and so Jesus comes to us over and over and, and says the words that, that um, cast out doubt and give us um, perfect love. That's perfect faith. And that's in him. Um, so you might actually think about it this way. The divine service each Sunday is Jesus keeping his promise. Right? And and you keep receiving that promise over and over, so that 
you can hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Hey, there you go. I, a lot of people talk about um, divine service, Sunday worship, as being, you know, keeping the Sabbath day and following the third commandment. Um, I think that gets you a little bit of the ways there, but it's, it's ultimately not the most convincing for people. But rather saying, this is how Jesus um, continues to show his love for you. This is how he builds faith in you. This is how he encourages you in the midst of um, despair and, and uh, you know, the crazy changes of this world. You know, fixing your heart where true joys are found, as we prayed in the collect on Sunday. Uh, that's much better to speak in terms of gift and promises kept rather than uh, speaking of law and what you must do. Um, because again, that doesn't get you very far. And we're pretty good at ignoring the law, uh, whether it's civil law or it's God's law. Um, and then there's one more let us expression here. Uh, I have to look this up, how you make a hortatory conjunction. Hortatory uh, conjunction Greek. Let's find out. <laughs> um, let's see, it's subjunctive plus um, something plus the subjunctive. Hortatory is used. Present. Uh, dun, 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 subjunctive mood. Oh, okay. All right, so it's future. It's either present plus the subjunctive or future plus the subjunctive. Okay, active subjunctive. There we go. So you form it. So we begin with the verb. <laughs> I'm looking at a Greek grammar here. Oh, it's perf It's a perfect participle plus the, the plus subjunctive. Okay, so that's how you do it. It's a perfect participle because it's it's um, perfect tense stuff and, and a participle form is it's done and it continues to be done. And then with the subjunctive, it's like may or might is usually how we translate subjunctive. But here it's let us when it's with the perfect participle. Okay. And if any of you know any Greek grammar and I got that wrong, mea culpa, which is Latin, but oh well. One more let us here. So we've got we've had two so far, right? Um, let us draw near. And now let us hold fast the confession. And now 24. And let us consider one another in order to provoke up love and good works. All right. So this is now we're talking about um, having had faith towards God, then he aligns us with love towards one another. Um, so provoking or stirring up love and good works. We often don't, um, we don't do this. <laughs> we're so worried um, about giving people things to do or talking to them about uh, whatever. I, I mean, I like to give people opportunity um, and then to encourage one another. So, um, well, I don't know. Let's see. Don's in here. So Don, Don and Karen were working on the, on the seed bed or the flower bed out in front of the church, right? Um, but they also were there with, um, uh, with Don and Jean, right? Um, I don't know who, who stirred up who, right? He can probably tell us. Um, but somebody had the idea, hey, we need to work on those flower beds. They, you know, they could use some work, get rid of those bushes, et cetera. And then somebody talked to somebody else and said, hey, can you come help us do this? Wouldn't that be fun? Let's do this together, right? That's exactly what happened, I'm sure. I doubt that they both said at the same moment, Let's do the, and then like, oh, you want to do it too? Let's do it together, right? Um, but rather one encouraged the other, and there was a conversation, and they said, let's do it together, right? So that's exactly what's happening here. It was the vetter's idea. All right, so there you go. Don clarified that. The vetter's approached the Pfeiffers and said, hey, let's do this lovely thing for the church, right? For our congregation, for our brothers and sisters. And it is a good work because it's done out of love, and it's done in faith, right? That's what makes it good. Faith. That is the forgiveness of sins, because it probably wasn't done perfectly. <laughs> no, I think it look it actually looks quite a bit better. I don't know if it's perfect, but it's good. All right. Um, but here, what is what does the preacher teacher have in mind? Verse twenty five, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but um, exhorting or what giving. I like. Exhorting is a word that we just don't use. It's parakaleo. It's to give encouragement. <laughs> you tried to be perfect. Nice done. Um, it's giving encouragement to one another. And encouragement is such a lovely word. We need to use this word more often. Um, I've kind of latched onto it, mentioned it in Bible study two weeks ago, Sunday. You know, it's to put courage into someone. Because we, my experience with Christians, it doesn't matter what context, is they, 
they're so fearful of maybe doing the wrong thing or making a mess of stuff or, um, you know, there's a time to restrain one's speech and to not speak and to be silent. There's a time for speaking. There's a time for silence. But there's also a time to be silent and to listen. Um, but we forget that um, sometimes we actually just need to encourage one another. <laughs> that is to put courage in it. And, uh, um, you know, one of, one of Satan's attacks, the demonic attack, is to actually um, to split Christians up, to split up Christian congregations, Christian homes, separate husbands and wives, um, to drive people apart and into isolation. It was one of my, um, uh, it is probably my most significant criticism of even the notion of a lockdown, I think, um, you know, whether it was, had malicious intent or not isn't the point, is that to drive people apart into their homes in isolation from one another, um, then it prevents this sort of thing from happening, encouraging uh, one another, right? Maybe over the phone or something like that. Um, but it's not, there's no courage. It's actually, we were living in fear in our homes of a virus. And maybe it was, um, seemed reasonable. I think it was reasonable at the time, given uh, what we were being told. Now, of course, we know that what we were being told isn't uh, entirely the truth, um, or things were overblown, or they were being exaggerated um, to manipulate us into a particular result, right? Um, and now coming out of that, though, a year later, you know, how many people need to, to have courage put into them, encouraged um, to return, say, to corporate worship, right? I mean, we have folks that have been, that have received both rounds of vaccination, they still wear masks and they still won't come to church. <laughs> like, what more can we do? What more can, how more, see, those things actually don't encourage you. Um, they might set aside some of your fear, probably not. So where does courage come from? Where does this encouraging uh, people to join together again um, with love and good works in the Christian congregation? You have to scroll all the way back. What's the problem, actually? People who are fearful, what's wrong? They have an evil conscience. Ah, all right. And they, what do they need? They need to be forgiven, right? They also don't believe that their bodies are being um, guarded and preserved by God, having been washed in the waters of baptism, right? So they distrust God and, um, and his preservation of them, right? This is nothing new, by the way, um, this sort of like uh, leaving the Christian congregation. I mean, obviously here, you know, out of fear of loss of life, for example, um, this was a common experience at the time of uh, the writing of this book, is that the Christians would be marched off and put in the Colosseum and put on show, right? They would, they would be paraded uh, and then uh, martyred. Um, mauled to death by lions and, and other beasts, um, being set on poles and set on fire and, then, and used as, as human torches to uh, light the streets. Right? Um, now, that's actual real fear of the of destruction of the body. But what are we so afraid of? Right? So stir one another up to love. Right? And love, remembering, remember, is this is agape love. This is the love of the Father. Right? And then good works. That's um, um, ergon, meaning service to one another. Right. In particular, where does this come from? It comes from the assembling of each other together. Uh, it's very hard to encourage people over the phone. Um, it's a lot easier to encourage one another when you're in uh, assembly together in person, right? Because you have all of the gifts of interpersonal communication that God has blessed us with our eyes and our ears and our body language and our smiles. I mean, if somebody comes up to your church and says, um, or, you know, says, you know, um, it's so good to have you back or it's so good to have you here. Um, have you thought about helping us, you know, with the, uh, uh, what's coming up? Oh, like the pizza making fundraiser. It's a lot harder to say no to someone too, when they ask you in person, right? That's what's going on here. That's what he's talking about. Um, and why do we need to encourage each other to be in Christian congregation, to, to not forsake the communal assembly, right? It's so that we can give encouragement and, and especially encouragement, not just, um, towards good works, um, but towards the previous two lettuces, right? Holding our confession, confession and hope um, and having our consciences sprinkled clean through the forgiveness of sins and uh, trusting in our baptism that is the washing of pure water. All right? So, and I think we miss that because we, again, we always talk about church attendance and in, in, by the way of the law, and we don't always, but uh, we typically fall back to that. Well, don't you know that you need to be in church? Well, if by need you mean in order to receive the gifts that he gives in church, well, of course. But that's not how people hear it. Need, as in, you need me there so that you have a warm body in the pew, or you need me there um, 
So you put offering in the plate, which, okay, fair enough, I guess. Um, you're welcome to give offerings, and we love to have more people in church. Um, but I suppose you could turn it, if you wanted to turn that phrase a little bit, as you say, no, actually, we need your presence um, because I need to hear your confession. I need to hear, I need to hear um, your faith because your faith is a blessing to me. It's a benefit to me, the faith that God has given you in the Spirit. Right? And I'm not saying that you're not a Christian by not being in church. Although it's hard to remain a Christian and not gather together with the rest, right? Because you, you miss the, the place where he encourages, where he exhorts one another, right? In, in faith and love. Um, so I'm not saying that you're not going to receive it, but um, it, might not, it might not last for very long. And um, your faith is given to you also as a benefit to one another. All right, so it's an, it is encouraging, and you know, everybody knows this is true. Uh, Easter Sunday, you know, or Palm Sunday, I think even more so. Uh, we had you know a big attendance. We had over a hundred people. I think we had one hundred and twenty or something on Palm Sunday, right? And it and it was encouraging as there were more voices. I mean, there's there's strength in numbers, right? That's a truism. That's a true proverb, um, and uh, and I think it's because of you know this is that it's encouraging to one another. We see, look, God is doing His work. Yes, Pam, I see your folded hands good all right um now what i like to do most of us are still absent who are still absent are still giving their offerings yeah isn't that interesting um and uh, i don't fault them for that i i'm I'm thankful for that i'm glad that they're still doing that um on the other hand it it does beg the question which is more important that your presence and your present um receiving christ's gifts or that christ receives your gifts that you return to him Hmm. which should be the priority um, I know this might be a little controversial. It might be pastors just being a little arrogant. Um, but no, I mean, I would rather have someone receive Christ's gifts and not have an offering to give <laughs> um, than to um, give an offering, but yet neglect the gifts and the gathering together, as some have done, right? And, and the preacher teacher here, um, this is a canonical text of the scripture, right? It's accepted by the church uh, as God's word, says, don't forsake the assembling together. All right, so if you want to take that by way of law, you can. Um, I was encouraging you to say, why don't you want to forsake the assembling together? Because that's where the gifts are. That's where your people are. That's where your courage comes from as you gather with fellow Christians. Yeah. Uh, and, and of course, you know, the pandemic is a little um, uh, pre- peculiar. I mean, I have my own personal opinion as to how um, pandemic-y it actually was. Uh, but on the other hand, I do recognize that there are times maybe where um, one has to be absent. I mean, say, for example, you had uh, knee or hip surgery, right? I mean, you're not going to be able to be in person for a while until you, you're mobile again. Actually, those surgeries work pretty well. What would be a, one that would keep you immobile for a while? Oh, I don't know. Maybe you had heart surgery or something. You might not, we might not see you in church for a few weeks, right? So then take advantage of the resources, the digital resources, whatnot. Um, I don't think your conscience should be burdened in that case, right? But if you're neglecting it because well, you really don't have a reason anymore. You're just afraid. You might want to think about what's the source of that fear and is it actually um, a good fear, uh, a reasonable fear, or is it actually now the devil actually um, inflicting your conscience um, in an evil way and leading you outside of the gifts of faith? So, yeah, maybe a little, I don't know, hopefully that's not too aggressive for you, those who are watching and listening, but I'll give you the idea there. Okay, let's talk about how this text is used. Um, it is used in the lectionary. Um, in the three-year series, it's used towards the end of the church year and in instruction about the end of the world, right? And you see that here, the day approaching. It makes sense that you would use it in that context. Um, God has kept his promises, um, but recognize that it is necessary to remain with his promises. Don says, if we encourage them to come back, we shouldn't be accused for looking for offerings that they are already giving. Uh, give up your fear. Yeah. We shouldn't be accused of looking. Right, because they're already giving their offerings. I see where you're going with that, Don. Yeah, it's not, we don't need your offerings. Uh, that's, of course, something crazy that pass, that this pastor says that uh, I learned from another pastor. Um, you know, I tell this to new members. It's like, look, we're here to give you the gifts. We want you to receive the gifts. We actually don't, I don't need your service and I don't need your offerings. <laughs> I don't need you to do anything. I don't need you to give us anything. Just, just come. That's it. Receive. Uh, but that's that's speaking in the way of the gospel. Um, 
do we benefit from your offerings? Do we benefit from your service if you can serve in various ways? Of course, right? Uh, we don't need it, but we do benefit from your love, right? So you can show your love that way. Thanks, Don. Yeah, give up your fear. I'm, I know it's hard to say that, isn't it? Because um, in one sense, um, congregations, pastors, church leaders like you are asking people to defy um, uh, authorities, certain authorities, right? Who are speaking, um, who are actually inflicting consciences, I would say, in an evil way. Um, Dr. Frouchy in, in particular. Oh, sorry, I shouldn't misspeak about his name. Hmm. Um, so we have to talk about, you know, what gives us access to God. We do that at the, at the end of the church here, and it is through the forgiveness of sins, and we have complete access to God. Um, you'll note the language of this, of this section of, uh, of Hebrews is actually echoed by Luther in the Lord's Prayer in the small catechism. I don't know if you caught this. All right. Um, think about what he says um, uh, to, the first, or to the introduction to the Lord's Prayer when he says, Our Father, right? What does this mean? With these words, God tenderly invites us to believe that we are his true children and that he is our true Father, so that with all, here it is, boldness and confidence, we may, what? Ask him as dear children, ask their dear Father. So there's exactly, Luther is just carbon copying, here's boldness, right? And confidence, we talked about, where was that? The assurance of faith here, in full assurance of faith. Um, ask him as dear children, ask their dear father. Oh, um, we said that boldness is that freedom of speech, right? Right, and I talked about that with prayer. We have that kind of privilege of free speech that we can stand before the father and pray um, as children, that is, children grafted into the holy family through his son, that is, in baptism. Addressing God the Father together with Jesus, our priest, and praying to him with the prayer of Jesus. Right? Luther echoes that right away in the small catechism uh, in the introduction to the Lord's Prayer, which is pretty cool. There's also another time that we use this same language here that we have in verses 19 to 25, and that's in divine service setting three. Where's my hymnal? Uh, sorry, I'm in my office. I tend to spread out and use as much space as I have available to me. <laughs> Piles of books. Um, it's in the exhortation to confession. So it's at the very beginning of the, the confession, service three, I should say, the old common service, right? Uh, which is probably my preference. I would use it all the time, but I recognize that uh, we want to make sure we have at least a familiarity with a few of the services so that if we attend other churches, we're not caught flat-footed. All right, listen to this. Oh, that's service four. <laughs> service three. Tell me if this doesn't sound familiar. Uh, to here, I'll make sure that the right verse is up. I'll give you the verse. All right, compare what I say here to this verse, verse twenty-two. Beloved in the Lord, let us draw near with a true heart, <laughs> and confess our sins unto God our Father, beseeching Him in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to grant us forgiveness. And what is what is absolution? but the renewal of the gift of forgiveness we received in our baptism when we were washed with pure water. But look at it, and it's almost a carbon copy, right? Let us draw near with a true heart and confess our sins unto God, our Father. That's the assurance of faith. Or actually, the assurance of faith is beseeching him in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to grant us forgiveness, to sprinkle our hearts from an evil conscience. Isn't that something? It's right there. It's Hebrews 10, 22. So we have it in... Uh, Service three. So that, that puts our, our congregation, when we use that service, service three, in the same situation as the congregation, um, as the writer or preacher teacher to the Hebrews here. Um, here's what Kleinig says about it. I think this is helpful. Before the members of the congregation may approach God in the heavenly sanctuary, they must be true to God the Father in confessing their sins and receiving his absolution through Jesus Christ, their great high priest. Then, forgiven and cleansed from sin, they can come before God the Father with a good conscience, not an evil one, a good conscience, on, along the holy way, right? We talked about the way being in here, as through his flesh, right? The way, the new and living way, the holy way, um, coming to, 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 through the way that Christ provides, the way from earth to heaven that is symbolized by the aisle that goes from the nave into the sanctuary or we say the chancel sometimes, right? So there's that center aisle, the open way that Christ has prepared for them by his death and resurrection. Um, I'm 
trying to think if we know, have any churches in our area that have this. Um, but I, I love, and I would, you know, put this on your wish list. Don's here; he can write it on the wish list. Um, is to instead of having a carpet runner down the middle, if we actually had, uh, you know, like stone or uh, wood inlay. I've seen this where they um, churches will have, if they have their font um, in that center aisle, they'll actually have a compass on the floor, right? Because it shows you the way. Um, to the altar, right? And sometimes you'll see um, in the wood inlays, you'll see um, instead of just, you know, square planks, you'll actually see, you know, a diagonal inlay that shows like arrows pointing up to the altar. It's kind of a fun architectural feature, right? Um, The open way that Christ has prepared for them by his death and resurrection. The Father's word of pardon opens the door for entry into the heavenly realm and admits pardoned sinners into God's holy presence. All right, listen to this. Yeah, add it to the list. Thanks, Don. With its rich teaching on the unique character of Christian worship, this high point in the sermon helps the congregation to understand what happens in the divine service. There they approach God the Father communally in his heavenly house. All the members of the community are well qualified for this because they have been washed with the water of baptism and cleansed with the blood of Jesus. All right, we've talked at length about that. Verse 22 in particular. Since he is their high priest, he himself ushers them into the Father's presence. All right, so we don't need ushers. Jesus is the usher. (laughs) That was a joke. Um, He gives them his flesh as their way to the Father. Let's see that in verse 20 right there, the new and living way, which he consecrated by his, uh, with the veil that is his flesh. And his blood is to cleanse their hearts from a bad conscience, verse 22. They therefore truly put their faith in God's promises and seek with hope what he has promised. As they join together in approaching God as brothers of Christ and God's royal children, they also regard one another as members of God's holy family by sharing their love and their material resources with the people in their community of faith. All right. So that's a fruit of faith that comes out of the divine service is then to care for one another in their need. Thus in the divine service, God's holy people exercise their faith in God's grace, their hope in which he has promised, and their love for their brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, think about the post-communion collect, that he would increase in us faith toward you and fervent love toward one another. Right? By teaching them these three things, God writes his law on their hearts. All right. Um, there's, a, there's actually a pretty cool prayer. Well, I mean, we could talk about the formula of Concord has all of this, about Christ's flesh being the... Um, our access to the Father. Um, but we don't need to go there. There's actually a really cool prayer from the Liturgy of St. James, which is an Eastern prayer. And um, maybe we should just end there. So I don't see any other questions. Uh, and I'm a little bit over time, but I got started a few minutes late. So how about we end on this? I'll share this prayer with you. All right. We thank thee, our Lord, O Lord our God, that thou hast given us boldness for the entrance of thy holy places, which thou hast renewed to us as a new and living way through the veil of the flesh of thy Christ. We therefore, being counted worthy to enter into the place of the tabernacle of thy glory, and to be within the veil, and to behold the holy of holies, cast ourselves down before thy goodness. Lord, have mercy on us. Since we are full of fear and trembling, when about about to stand at thy holy altar, and to offer this dread and bloodless sacrifice for our own sins and for the errors of the people, send forth, O God, thy good grace, and sanctify our souls and bodies and spirits, and turn our thoughts to holiness, that with a pure conscience we may bring to thee a peace offering, the sacrifice of praise. All right, not a bad prayer. Uh, I got one beef in there, but I'm not going to dwell on it. Um, Also think of this prayer. This is from Christ Sits at God's Right Hand by uh, Stephen Starkey, Pastor Stephen Starkey, which we sing pretty frequently. Then let us now draw near, washed in that precious flood, and enter the most holy place by Jesus' blood. From hearts that are sincere, let tongues our hope profess, and trust anew God's faithful grace that we confess. That's him 564. All right, very good. So that's our uh, study uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. We didn't do very many verses, but there's it's so dense. And this is, again, the culmination of um, where the book has been going for the last five chapters. All right, so next week we're going to transition into the next section, 
uh, which begins on verse 26. And that has um, to do with now how does the Christian live having this full um, access to God, having um, been cleansed through his blood, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience um, to serve a living God. We're going to get into that next time. All right. Good night, Tim. Yep. Good night, Don. Good to have you all. Thanks, Pam, for checking in there. <coughs> and uh, thanks for explaining uh, what you meant there, Don, about the offerings. Yeah. Yeah. We don't need to come back for the offerings. You're already doing that. So, uh, but we do, we, we do miss you. I, I think that's probably the best way to uh, encourage people uh, to return to Christian Assembly is like, we miss you. Um, you're part of this fellowship and uh, we'd lo- we really would love to have you back. All right. So, Have a good evening, and we'll see you again in the morning for our congregation prayer at 9 a.m. See you then.